The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters where we have interviews with wise people, interesting people, with information uh, and sometimes guidance for you on your own spiritual path. If you're new to the podcast, I invite you to uh, listen to previous interviews. There's probably close to 15 by now this year. And if you're so inclined, uh, go to spiritmatterstalk.com for the uh, previous incarnation of this podcast, where a few hundred interviews are uh, archived. Today's guest, this is an unusual show, and I think you're going to all uh, get a lot out of it, um, because we're going to be talking about science. J.D. Stillwater is a former science teacher, now a public speaker, author, and science educator and ambassador, as he likes to say, who shares revelations and insights from natural reality that drive spiritual and cultural awakening. He's an officer of the Religious Naturalist Association, and serves on the governing council of the Institute on Religion in an Age of Science, something I'd like to know more about. And he presents all over the place at venues ranging from colleges and civic organizations to the Parliament of World Religions, which is where I met him in August of uh, this year, 2023. And I was uh, intrigued by his presentation on science and spirituality. And he was nice enough to accept my invitation here. Welcome, J.D. All right. Glad to be here. Now, the parliament was an amazing thing. Have you, <laughs> have you done it before? Or was that your I, first This one? was my third. Wow. Yeah. yeah. People from all over the world and all oh. these Different face, little tiny face that I'd never heard of, and really I big know. ones. And yeah, and seven or eight thousand people. It was a little overwhelming, honestly, <laughs> to try it. There was every. I gave two talks, and they were scheduled at the same time as talks I wanted to go to, and where my friends were speaking, and all that. It's always but, that way. <laughs> at conferences. We usually begin these uh, interviews with the guests' uh, spiritual origin story, ah. how they came to their views on spirituality, their uh, affiliations, if any, and uh, the work that they do. So I'd like to ask you that. Um, obviously, you had a love of science at an early age. Was there uh, a spiritual or religious uh, thing going on in your in your household? Yes. And, uh, let me hear about that. Um, when my parents, my parents met actually in um, early high school, actually late elementary school, but they went to college in the same place. They both went to University of Rochester. And while they were there, they met a professor who was very much into 
um, what we would now call new age thinking. Uh And um, so during my childhood, I was raised by um, two parents who would refer to themselves as esoteric Christians. Uh Uh, But there was a lot of Eastern influence, um, reincarnation, karma, grace, the Edgar Cayce readings. Uh Yeah, right. The ARE, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, were big, big parts of my childhood. Um, However, I also come from a family of engineers and educators. And Mm. of the six people in my nuclear family, we have uh, four educators and three engineers. (laughs) Because one of them is both. Um, So there was always a mixture of sort of science and and spirituality, at least as um, New Age people would define spirituality. And I gather probably many of your listeners think of spirituality as having to do with transcendent realities. Um, And and I I stayed in, in that mindset on and off. I mean, like many spiritual seekers, (laughs) <laughs> I've been around the block in terms of um, things that I followed, paganism, and um, oh, for a while I was an Ayn Rand objectivist. Oh. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't yeah. think of that as a spiritual path, but I guess it can be. It's kind of an anti-spiritual yeah, path. Yeah, that's what so, I would think, yeah. So, um, but then in college... Um, I I loved science. I continued to study science. Um, I have way more credits than I need <laughs> to, <laughs> to be a science teacher just because I, I loved the coursework. I loved learning it. And um, so I don't know if that's enough of a background. Um, that, that doesn't tell you much about where I am now, but the introduction. That was my next question, which yeah. is, uh, well, there are two. Um, first, Let's start with this one. Your bio says you're a member of a church. Yes. Um, Somewhere else in your website material, I saw something about you uh, speaking or performing at Unitarian churches. So is the church you're a member of a Unitarian church? And if so, why? In 2004, we moved from the uh, self-declared Bible Belt of Eastern Ohio to Harrisburg, <laughs> Pennsylvania, and with our eighth grade daughter, began looking for a church home. We, we missed spiritual community. Um, we just, there, you know, the nearest Quaker meeting in Ohio was a 45-minute drive away, mm-hmm. although that probably would have worked for us at the time. Um and we came here and we fell in love with the UU Church here in Harrisburg, um, ah. especially the minister. Um, and so we have continued. I'm still very active in the Unitarian Church of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And um, <clears throat> it's a wonderful community of people. Nice. And it's a, it's, it's a um, theologically diverse community of people. Unitarian Universalism is generally. We have atheists and agnostics and Jews and Buddhists and people that are are on many different spiritual paths, but want to spend at least Sunday mornings together as a community, doing that seeking together in in parallel and in community without any of us having to convince the others that our path is better. Very interesting. From my experience, the UU Church has become kind of... um, a home of uh, inclusive and diverse paths, very different from its origins when, you know, uh, Emerson and Emerson's father were Unitarian ministers and Emerson famously left it. Uh, But um, it's fascinating and, and very I'm sure a lot of people who who want to be part of a diverse spiritual community uh, find a good home in Mm -hmm. in, uh, the UU churches. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no no, um, kind of theism in the UU churches, or is that an option as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Every congregation is different. They all have a different flavor, just like every family or every school. Uh, but 
Well, a good leadership in a UU congregation, which is often a minister, but not necessarily, will make sure that Sunday morning messages are diverse. Mm-hmm. So there will be some theism. You know, they will talk, oh. someone will, um, a minister will bring in wisdom from many different faith traditions. Um, again, without having to say this is the right one or this other one is the wrong one, but what can we glean from one another? I mean, it's it's the classic benefit of diversity in any community, whether it's yeah, a community yeah. of plants or a community <laughs> of animals. The, the benefit of diversity is that you can take the best of each one and not necessarily have to buy the whole package. Got because, it. you know, there's that almost cliched story now about the blind men and the elephant. Yeah. So truth is bigger than any of us can encapsulate in words or in a path or in a Bible. And so if we want to get as close as we can, we should, as the 12 steppers say, take what you like and leave the rest. <laughs> you know. Thanks. Sounds good. Um, now to your current work, how did how did the uh link between science and spirituality uh, first come to you and how how where did you take it from there as an educator well honestly for me it started in my classroom i was teaching physics which is my my main subject and um, I'll just use gravity as an example. Newton's equation for gravity, which is still all you need to get to Mars, um, <laughs> is a pretty simple equation. It involves the masses of two objects and the distance between them. And so I'm teaching this to my students, and I give them practice problems for homework, like you know, two soup cans out in interstellar space. Each one has a mass of one kilogram. What is the force of gravitational attraction between them? And, you know, calculate the force of gravitational attraction between your body and that kid you have a crush on two classrooms over, <laughs> you know. And what I realized as I was giving out these problems and, and grading their responses is that no matter how small the two objects are or how far apart they are, there is a force of gravitational attraction between them. It's very weak. Gravity is a very weak force but it's never zero. So you can pick an atom inside your body and an atom in a far distant galaxy. And there is a thread, an invisible thread of gravitational attraction between those two atoms. The mass of your body helps hold the Milky Way galaxy together. (laughs) And without it, without the mass of your body alone, the the modeling of what would happen to the galaxy over long time periods here i'm talking billions of years would be measurably different if the mass of your body was not involved in helping hold the milky way galaxy together so for me wait wait that that begs the question what happens to the galaxy when a body dies the mass of the body gets distributed over the earth. Okay. That too changes the equations. I, I tried to track it down and I, I wasn't able <laughs> to, to see the modeling, but there was a National Geographic article about five, six years ago about modeling planets' orbits. And a NASA um, gravitational specialist made this comment that moving a pencil from one side of your desk to the other <laughs> moves. Jupiter halfway around its orbit a billion years from now. Wow. So it's a serious effect. It really matters. That's amazing. So even taking the mass of your body and distributing it over the Earth when you die, every little change like that matters. It's why it's so hard for them to model things like, will that asteroid ever run into the Earth? Because um. all of the different bodies that are involved in the solar system their gravity affects one another. And so a tiny little change to one of them, especially telescoped out over billions of years, makes it very hard to model what will happen. Fascinating. So what happened in your classroom when you were teaching this that was some kind of a moment for you or insight? 
to me, it it felt really profound, you know, spiritually profound to recognize that I am connected gravitationally with every single atom in the universe. And, you know, I, I would mention this to my students and I would share my enthusiasm about how profound this is. And for most of them, they just wanted to know what was going to be on the test. <laughs> right. But I started collecting these things. I, st- I, you know, only in the last couple of years, I've started calling them revelations because they are things that the scientific community has revealed about the way reality works, physical reality, that most people don't know, for one. And for another, if they did know them, would be profoundly worldview changing. They would affect how we orient ourselves in the universe and and on the earth and with each other. And so my mission has become not just to collect these things, but to share them and to share how profound they influence my relationship with other people and the world around me. And I must say, and uh, for our listeners, uh, your your enthusiasm is infectious. Because uh, when I went to your presentation at the parliament, um, it, it, the insights and the facts that you presented were in that kind of mind-boggling mm-hmm. uh <laughs> revelatory category, but your enthusiasm was also important. And I, I mean, that speaks to, um, well, the quality of uh, education. Um, speaking of enthusiastic public speakers in the realm of science, I saw on your website that your definition of spiritual or spirituality uh Bob owes something to Carl Sagan. Yes, I I was hoping we would get to this because there are as many definitions of spiritual as there are people, <laughs> certainly as there are people writing about it. Um, I think spirituality is is what gets us excited. And not in a cerebral way, but what what speaks to our hearts as human beings and um, gives us the spine tingling, this is why I'm here kind of feeling. And spirituality is what we experience in the quiet moments when we, we learn something important about ourselves, an inner truth about ourselves as individuals or something profound having to do with our relationships, relationships with other people and with the, you know, with the world around us. So I'm I'm aware that many people, when they hear or use the word spiritual or spirituality, they're talking about transcendent realms. They're talking not about what happens in the physical reality that we, we mostly live in day to day, but something else that's parallel or different or higher, some different dimension. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to be clear that that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. However, when I am talking about science and the spirituality one can glean from what's revealed by science, it doesn't really matter what your definition of spirituality is. It will still, I think, um, it it may still strike you as revelatory the way it does me. And so I'm inviting that. I just want to be clear that when I'm using those terms, I'm I'm mostly trying to limit my understanding of it to physical reality as science reveals it, partly because it's something we can all agree on. Mm. We, we probably will not ever all agree on whether our our um, whether there is a supernatural spirit that that uh, lives inside my body. We probably will never agree about whether that spirit will have future lives in in the form of reincarnation as Eastern traditions think of it. But we can all agree that the equations for gravity actually work and that we are, you know, in that way connected. So as a source of spiritual revelation, science, what science reveals about natural reality is truly interfaith, partly because we can all look at the same evidence and partly because the scientific community 
is populated by people from every major faith tradition. The work of science is truly an interfaith work, interfaith endeavor. And you could say a, a trans-faith uh, endeavor. Um, yep. I'm looking at the definition of uh, uh, that you post from Carl Sagan. Oh, yeah, I uh, forgot to mention Carl Sagan. Yeah, why, okay, then you do it. Well, I, I don't remember what's there. If you want oh. to read it. Um, it says, science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. When we recognize our place in an immensity of light years and in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty, and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined, is surely spiritual. The notion that science and spirituality are somehow mutually exclusive does a disservice to both. Yeah, I think, you know, that sounds beautiful to me. And Carl was so good with words. Yeah. Yes. And if people are too young to remember, uh, you can Google Carl Sagan, S-A-G-A-N, and the uh, incredible series he did on public television called uh, Cosmos. Did I get which that right? Yes, which continues with his student and, and mentee, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes. Now, the, the, um, the militant... Uh, fundamentalists and atheists have both sort of put Tyson in the middle of this culture war. And so he has had to be more, I don't know, he's, he's had to take more stands than I think Carl ever felt compelled mm. to. Mm. Um, but still, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson uses the word spirituality, especially when he's talking about the kinship of all life on this mm -hmm. planet. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, to sort of follow up on that quote from Carl Sagan, what science is revealing now is a, a worldview that centers kinship and ambiguity and mystery, things that we will never know. You know, each each time we reveal something new, as the as uh, Marcelo Glazer writes, the, uh, the island of knowledge, if you can think of everything we know as kind of an island surrounded by a vast sea of mystery things we not only we don't know but we don't know we don't know and every time science makes the island of knowledge a little bit bigger the shoreline between what we know and what we don't know gets even longer so mm -hmm. the more we know the more mystery we can see and so mystery is a permanent a permanent aspect of the scientific uh, pursuit and a lot of a lot of very deeply spiritual people and a lot of spiritual leaders, teachers, especially from the East, have always um, felt that the revelations of science are uh, not only compatible but are uh, nourishment for the spiritual impulse, as opposed to uh, the doctrines of what we think of as religion, which is where the clash, you know, comes yes. in, is manufactured. Um, given that definition, uh, the insights that you've um, focused on on the, in the talk I went to at the Parliament, and that are on your a website. Um, and when I read these things, I I just it's it's awe inspiring. And and there's that. It sounds like a cliche, but the sense of awe and and wonder and mystery, uh, and and the you know unknowability of things, is a part of the spiritual impulse uh, and. Um, and so um, I would I would ask you to uh, treat us to some of those. <laughs> I'll start. The one I remembered most from your talk was when you said that every time we inhale, mm -hmm. breathing, I forget the numbers, but some of the molecules that Jesus and Buddha 
also breathed in. Yes. That's yeah, these calculations are not hard. There's there's a standard <laughs> freshman college chemistry homework assignment where you have to figure out roughly how many molecules in each inhalation were part of Caesar's last gasp. <laughs> so if you want to Google it, that's that's what you do. And you know, you make a few uh estimations kind of a back of the back of the envelope thing that's what you're teaching in in college chemistry when you give that assignment you know don't try to get it perfect just back of the envelope how close are we and it comes out to about one molecule per breath for caesar's last gasp so if you <laughs> if you telescope that over the entire lifetime say uh -huh. 35 years or in buddha's case much longer than that 60 some years it's a lot. It comes out to millions of air molecules per breath. And something similar with water. Every cup of water you drink has about 700 million molecules in it that were inside Jesus's body while he was alive. <laughs> now, recently I did another calculation, and it, it turns out that, um, oh, I don't have the numbers handy, but it's it's so many million water molecules per pound in your body. So it comes out to be billions of molecules resident in your body right now, water molecules, that were inside Jesus's body at some time during his life. <laughs> so my spouse and I visited, um, we were able to spend some time in Europe one summer, and we visited this monastery in Austria where they have the finger bone of a saint. Mm -hmm. I don't remember which saint, mm -hmm. but these are holy relics. There are people whose full-time <laughs> job is to care for this finger bone of some saint that lived in the first century or the second century. And here I am, a tourist, walking through this monastery with billions of water molecules in my body <laughs> that were in Jesus's body at some point. So it just gives me this this very different perspective on on holy water to begin with, yes, but also to holiness in general. We're all holy relics. We, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not excited about the relic, part. <laughs> but but the interconnectedness of yeah. the cycles of flow on this planet water and air just you know they're just two of the cycles the carbon all the carbon in your body has spent time recently being apples and oak trees and you know these things are constantly constantly shutting shuttling back and forth between living things different living things and non-living things and and we are part of that flow. We are not. I mean, that's that's part of what has changed about my worldview. Is the, the the old Piscean, if you will, worldview is that we are objects. We are right. things, each separate from everything else. And what science is revealing in terms of these natural cycles is that we're separate just isn't even thinkable it's just we're not we're simply not separate we're not even separable right we are embedded in these cycles and they are embedded in us and here again these sound like mystical <laughs> mystical pronouncements of some prophet this is hard science you can do the calculation yourself and um interconnectedness or uh that this uh, union unity, uh, oneness sort of thing, is um, one of the takeaways when you um, look at, uh, even in a, take a cursory view of the evolution of science just within the last hundred years or so. And um, so say some more about that, if you will. What are the implications of this, uh, this scientific... Um, proof so to speak of um of that interconnectedness and non-separability well i need to backtrack a little bit and and okay. um, take take exception to the word proof it's okay. really important um all science knowledge is conditional mm. so there are things that we are quite certain about the earth being round um evolution having happened 
on this planet, um, gravity. <laughs> but even gravity, there, you know, when Einstein came along, our understanding of gravity changed tremendously, significantly. The yeah. equations, Newton's equations still work, but the way we conceive how gravity works is very different after Einstein than it was before. So when, you know, people like to use science as a way of bludgeoning one another, you know, it's happening with transgender issues right now. Where, mm. you know, some people's kind of shallow rudimentary understanding of biological sex, they feel like they can claim the mantle of science when they say there's only two. And that's that's not what science says today. It might have said that 150 years ago, but, but not now. Um, I got myself off on a tangent. So understanding that science knowledge is conditional and new evidence could come along that changes mm -hmm. or tweaks our pers perspective on things. But you were asking about the implications of the last 150 years. Implications um, regarding what? interconnectedness and oh. uh, and you that non-separateness. Well, there are mountains of evidence from multiple lines of of inquiry that say there is no separation all you know you can arbitrarily in fact you have to in physics you have to sort of pretend that a system is isolated so you can analyze it but there are no isolated systems in real life and so in the back of your head when you're doing physics you have to remember this this thought experiment that we're doing or this engineering you know this bridge we're building we're pretending that the bridge is only connected to the shore and not to distant oceans, but they are. They're still influencing each other. And when, when we get into the quantum realm, all bets are kind of off. Mm -hmm. and I, a lot of people kind of abuse quantum mm -hmm. physics for all, all kinds of um, uh, jumping to conclusions, I'll call it. But... Mm -hmm. But we really don't know whether space is real. We don't know whether time is real. Some of the the things that, that are being discovered in the last few decades, uh, like entanglement, call into question the concept of distance. Mm. If distance and location are questionable, and they're questionable because of the interconnectedness of these entangled particles that seem to communicate with one another over vast distances, breaking the, the speed limit, the, <laughs> the physical <laughs> speed limit of the speed of light. Physicists are, are questioning, maybe distance is an illusion. Maybe everything is actually all still right here, like it was in the initial singularity at the beginning of time. It's, it's true of black holes, too. They don't occupy any space. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the contents are kind of, uh, well, they have no height, width, or depth. There's, there's no volume to a black hole. It's all oh. this tremendous mass not occupying any space at all. Now, they oh. have around them, there's a region of space that you can't get information out of that does occupy space. But the black hole itself has no volume. It's infinite density. And the universe began with just light in an initial singularity. And th those are two serious, seriously profound revelations. For the moment, I just want to talk about the singularity because there was no space in the initial singularity. That's why it's called the Big, Big Bang, because before the first second of time had elapsed, space sort of was invented or space was was created in the cosmos and it went from no volume at all to much much bigger than our solar system in much much less than a single second and then there was space the experiments that are being done now at the quantum level suggest they don't prove but they suggest that maybe the entire universe is still in a kind of singularity and that distance is an illusion. So we don't know what's going to happen with that. We don't we don't know where theoretical physics is going to take us. But with <laughs> I'm way off on a tangent again. No, it's <laughs> good. It's it was good. about connectedness. Yeah. And even before quantum 
any kind of quantum mechanical reasoning or, or thinking or experimentation, our biological and chemical connectedness with the earth is, it, it goes on many levels. It's almost indisputable at this point. You just have to do a little a little studying of mainstream conventional science to recognize that all of our seeming separateness is an illusion of your body, the matter, you know, the, the reason there are so many holy water molecules in my body is because they flowed through Jesus's body so quickly and Buddha's body and, you know, name, pick an ancestor. doesn't <laughs> matter. Our bodies aren't objects. They're flows. They're, they're patterns in a flow of matter. And so whatever you want to believe about spirits or souls, that much connects us just on the, the physical matter-based level. We don't even have to start on energy. And, and here I'm, I'm talking about the kind of energy that physicists yeah. study. That too is a, a, a flowing dance all the time. Speaking of which, you, know, you, you brought in uh, quantum physics um, for the last few decades, I, you know, I've seen many people in the spiritual uh, communities here and there evoke the uh, revelations of quantum physics uh, to, in their eyes, demonstrate spiritual realities such as that in the subatomic realm, um, there's a lot of empty space. <laughs> there's um, things we call subatomic particles that are not solid objects that we think of as, you know, the billiard ball model. Right, they're not. Um, and and so there, it it's it it speaks to a kind of um, non-physical reality that is uh, more real in a sense than what we perceive with our senses as solid separate objects um this is my this i remember being mind blowing to me and many other young spiritual seekers but i also know that um physicists take a great deal of exception to some of these um um pronouncements uh yeah. So I wonder if you could just speak to that a moment. What 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 can we take away? What has been said that may not match the uh, the reality of of the known science? I think the most important takeaway is that our experience of reality is an illusion. The danger point, I think, is when people use quantum physics to justify the assertion that it's all an illusion. Mm. If there isn't a material reality out there for science to study, then it doesn't matter what's, what <laughs> science has to say or what science finds. But, it, you know, it is interesting to me that scientists with very different viewpoints on reality do the same experiment and get the same results. So I think there is a reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I say out there, but it's also in here. I think we live in a natural reality. And I'm carefully not using the word material reality. Mm. And I'll explain why in a minute. Um, you're right. From a scientific standpoint, something solid like a desk if you look closer and closer and closer and closer to it, there's nothing there. Right. You know, even solid iron is 99.9999% empty space. And then when you look at what's occupying the space, it's electrons, protons, and neutrons. And when you look really closely at them, they dissolve into energy, a dance of energy. Mm -hmm. That's the science. That's true. But it does not mean I can get into my car without opening the car door. And it does <laughs> not mean that cars don't exist. And it doesn't mean I can move things with my mind. And it does not mean that my positive vibes that I send out into the universe, uh, well, I need to be careful there because thoughts 
involve mm -hmm. electrical energy in the brain and that does radiate out right you know the mainstream science hasn't yet identified any kind of measurable effect of that my thoughts on the rest of reality but we mustn't be too quick to jump to conclusions the other side right. of things right we just don't know about that but I, I saw a YouTube short just the other day. This woman starts out and, you know, she she's very earnest, very sincere. I don't fault her at all. But she talks about how the universe began with just light and how even today the science says the universe is really a dance of energy. And I was like, yeah, you go. <laughs> this is good stuff. And then she says, so the energy that I put out <laughs> my daily life will determine whether I'm rich or I'm poor. And I was thinking, oh man, that Calvinist stuff is still oh, it's Calvinist science. So if I'm poor, it's my fault because I don't, I'm not putting out good energy. She's yeah, talking about yeah. two completely different kinds of energy. When yeah. physicists study energy, it's they're talking about the ability to do things, to move things, to change things, to to make to make change in the material the, the, i'm sorry the natural universe <laughs> it has physicists aren't talking about the vibes you put out and maybe those vibes do have an effect but and maybe they will 20 years from now maybe maybe but you can't use science to argue for it now right. not Got yet it. Got now it. do you want to know why i avoid material yes this, I think, is the most fundamental paradigm shift in science of the last 100 years, well, maybe 120 years. Mainstream society and the worldview that we are living out of the story of, the narrative, is that this is a clockwork universe and that people and things are objects and they are predictable. Physicists and most other scientists today have a completely different mm. paradigm that they're thinking out of because of relativity, quantum mechanics, and um, oh, other other things that are ancillary to those. The universe really is a dance of energy in constant flow. And there are no materials here, at least not if what we mean by materials is objects, there are no objects like you learned in chemistry class. Those subatomic particles aren't little balls that are in orbit. They're, they're waveforms. They're, they are things with probabilistic existence that, um, that are poetically a dance of energy. And so... When we talk about material reality, it paints a picture in people's heads of a clockwork universe that's full right. of objects that do right. things with each other. And that's not the universe we live in. We live in a universe that's much more um, active than that. It's more of a process than a thing. It's a process that's constantly unfolding and and um, and changing and every everything influences everything else. So... There is a natural reality out, out there and in here, and we can study it and we can do the experiments and look at the data together, but it's not material in nature. It's a process, not a thing. Does this less materialistic understanding of science and natural reality, does that find its way into classrooms on the ordinary, uh, you know, elementary, junior high, high school level? Because it certainly no. wasn't when I was going to school. <laughs> no. In a word, no. Uh, that's too no. bad. They are so busy, especially now, at least in the United States. Maybe in other places it's different. But um, since No Child Left Behind, it's all about getting kids as far as we can to understand the um, the facts of, you know, the historical facts in the body of science knowledge mm -hmm. as we can and make sure that they're passing tests on it. So there isn't much time to even talk about how we know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
there's yeah i i don't want to go on a rant okay <laughs> what's wrong with education right now there's a yeah. lot that's right but there's there's less time than there used to be to just play with stuff and yeah. see how it works and and you know how did newton come to understand his famous um three laws and how do we know that they're true today it's more more often than not it's memorizing those three laws and being able to mm. apply them it's more engineering i guess you could say than science mm. that's too bad um so people, one, one last shot <laughs> <about science. laughs> um, there's the body of knowledge which is wonderful and great and it's what i mostly work with but then there's also the process of science and kids mm -hmm. are missing out on that yeah. they're missing yeah. out on the discovery aspect of it where do dark matter and dark energy fit into this this these are new concepts and uh uh, phrases that uh, have entered into, you know, the the, the dialogue, yeah. um, and I find it fascinating. How, how does that fit in with your view of and and the spirituality of science? Two ways. The first way, which is my favorite thing to say, is nobody knows. <laughs> There's the process of science, right? This is why I love it and many others love it is because there are things that we should be able to get answers to that are completely mysterious. And dark matter and dark energy are among them. So how it fits in is we, we now know that everything we already know about, like the island of knowledge, is 4% of the total. And we can see enough offshore from the island of knowledge we can see out into the sea of mystery 96 percent <laughs> of the universe is stuff we don't understand we don't know what it is or where it came from or how it works do you want a quick refresher on what those are quickly okay dark matter is the word that we give to the fact that galaxies rotate too fast yeah there it looks like there's more gravity there than there should be. So here again, using Newton's laws with the tweaks from Einstein, you look at all the, the matter in a galaxy like the Milky Way, and it should be rotating at a certain speed, and it's rotating faster than that. So there's missing matter, dark matter, because we don't know what it is. It might not be matter at all. It might be some, some other kind of compressive force or something like that. We don't know. Dark matter, I think, is around 24% of the total in the universe. Dark energy is the word, the phrase we use to explain the expansion of space. Expanding space takes energy, just like expanding a, a piece of rubber, a rubber band, or you know, taking a balloon and trying to blow it up. It takes energy. And space is expanding, and we do not know why. We just know that it is. And it's huge. It's a huge amount of energy somewhere on the order of 70 some percent so these uh, dark matter dark uh, energy the uh, the shoreline of the unknown and mystery these should evoke in us a certain humility and humility is always um presented as a, a virtue as in in spiritual and religious circles and you include that in your um insights there's one item in your insights uh, frankly i was surprised to see and i want to ask you about it and that's grace um, well I did this just the other day. I was in Ohio and um, some apple seeds that I planted when my kids were little are now, you know, nobody has pruned them. <laughs> They've been kind of abandoned and there were apples on them. And so I climbed the tree and picked an apple for myself and my nephew. That apple tree does not care <laughs> about, about my sinful past, whatever it is. So I include grace in there. Because from a very real physical scientific standpoint, St. Francis was right. It does not, the natural world does not care 
what awful things I might have done. The apple is there waiting for me to pick it. Now, there's a limit to that. If human beings as a civilization, as a species, pick all the apples and cut down all the apple trees, we, we are undermining nature's ability to provide us the grace that it so generously offers. The same is true with the sun. You know, it's, a, it's not a very scientific way of saying it, but it's poetically true. The sun is incredibly generous. Mm. It bathes the surface of the earth with, you know, I would say unmeasurable, but, but I'm sure it's measurable, kilowatts of, of sunlight energy all the time. And it just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. So there is grace. There is room for us in this universe, but we can we can abuse it. It's what you're evoking. The sun makes me think of all the uh, the uh, religions and spiritualities of the world that made the sun an object of worship mm -hmm. and gave it names and its ceremony. I mean, I I've gone I've been in India many times, and one of the the most sublime aspects of of being there is watching uh, the sun come up in Varanasi, the holy city that was once called Benares, and seeing the people come down to the holy Ganges and welcoming the sun with a variety of rituals and all that, because it's that important. Yeah. And yeah. you can have that experience without a religious tradition, I would think, if you have sufficient appreciation as you've just sort of conveyed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, our, our civilization treats the sun as a commodity. Like mm. we do everything, you know, apples are a commodity. Water is now a commodity. Yeah. I can remember my grandfather saying, well, you know, that nobody will ever be able to sell water. <laughs> Uh, tell that to the Nestle Corporation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, can, does science, if you come to it the right way, um, stimulate, evoke, emulate what we think of as spiritual experience? The it kind of... Yeah, I mean, I, go ahead. People have researched spiritual experience and mystical experience. Yes, and there are also psychologists who are studying awe. That's a relatively new study, actually, only about two decades now. Yeah, have people even tried to figure out what is this feeling of awe? What is this experience of awe? And they're closely tied together. What they're mm -hmm. finding is that mystical experience and awe, um, and spirituality, as people usually define it are closely interlinked in many ways. So for me personally, my studies of science offer so much awe and so much wonder at the mystery that, um, that to me, it's just obvious. So, um, yeah. And how do you experience it within? And in other words, um, we know enough about mystical experience to, uh, you know, scholars can break it down. There's this kind of mystical experience. There's this kind of mystical experience. We know a lot now about what happens in the brain mm -hmm. when people are having, when they're engaged in uh, meditative practices and mindfulness practices and all the traditional. Uh, and also that now there's research on uh, entheogens and, and psychedelics and how they stimulate. So we know a lot. Can one approach the body of knowledge of science, the process of science, the insights of science in ways that can evoke those kinds of experiences, like the awe you you, you mentioned? Wow, that is such a great question, because by and large, you're not going to find that in a classroom, a science mm -hmm. classroom. Um. And it's part of the reason I do what I do, because I don't see it being offered anywhere else. Scientists are 
they're constrained by their professional credentials from using words like spirituality. Mm. Even, even if they themselves have a very rich spirituality, you know, from any tradition, including the atheist tradition. Yeah. Um, but they can't really go there um, until they retire. And then some of them do. Um, that one of the reasons you did? No. 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 Um, and I I don't consider myself retired. I'm not. I'm no, not I mean, you that. switch from classroom to oh, public well uh, mostly i felt a calling to do this work yeah, okay. but yeah um i don't have a good answer to that i i think your own study may be the the best way but i i caution you to um to try and stick as much as you can with mainstream conventional science because there there are a lot of rabbit holes you can go down there are a lot of people out there who are making claims like the woman in that short video um, that the science means this other thing that and scientists themselves are just going, oh, you came so close and then you botched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, they could be I, selling something too. Oh, they almost always are. <laughs> yeah. Science proves what I'm selling you. That's right. That's right. And of course, if you've been on YouTube ever, you know that in the, in the realm of diet and exercise, oh, yeah. there are thousands of such people. Sure. And it's partly because the science changes more rapidly in those fields. And so there's a lot of nooks and crannies for people to stick their product in and, and make claims that stretch things a little bit. But you don't, to get this kind of awe and wonder, you don't have to stretch things at all. You Thank just, you. That's where I was. I was going to suggest that. And you're a great example of that because just perusing your website and the, hearing you speak at the Parliament, it's awe-inspiring. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people have had the experience of you know just be, regardless of the the science of it, just being in the natural world stargazing going to a planetarium one of the reasons neil degrasse tyson is such a um, public figure is he comes from the world of the hayden planetarium yeah. and he makes that uh exciting Spiritual. yeah and it's worship yes. service yeah it's kind, no, right it can no be religious that. overtones but what people experience in that room is profound yeah so on that note, I have to say, assuming this is going to air before April 8th, if you live along the path, oh, yeah. <laughs> the totality of the coming eclipse, do whatever you have to do to get to see the total eclipse of the sun. He, me he means 2024. April 8th, 2024. It's a Monday afternoon. I think it's at around two o'clock. And the path goes from southern Mexico up through Texas across the midwest and into new england it runs right along the southern yeah. shores of all the not all the great lakes erie and ontario so cleveland erie rochester and off into maine that's that's oh, the path my, my new neighborhood i'll be happy to uh put that on my calendar but make and your hotel reservations now because no i'm gonna i'm gonna have guests out. coming to me uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great um and uh, we only have a minute or so. Um, would you like to live, leave our listeners with something by way of a final words or a contemplative uh, uh, prod for them? Sure. To... Sure. Okay, please. Next time you're sitting quietly, try to envision outer space below your feet on the other side of the earth. Imagine yourself. <laughs> surrounded on all sides by endless, uncountable galaxies. And just see what happens. See if anything shifts inside you. That's Lovely. where you are. Breathing the air that Jesus and Buddha did. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much, J.D. This has been great. You're welcome. Um, everybody, uh, listeners, you can uh, find out more about J.D. at uh, jdstillwater.earth.com, yeah. but earth. Well, Calm and works, too. Calm works, too. Okay. It'll take you to the same place. 
Okay. Unity of .com and .earth. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for all the good work you do. This has been real fun. um, And listeners, uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for uh, tuning in. Uh, Go to my website. Let me hear from you. Sign up for my mailing list. And I'll uh, inform you of interesting things like this interview. And uh, tell your friends about the podcast. And let me know what you think we can do better. Uh, In the meantime, uh, thank again, J.D. Stillwater, and we'll see you all next time. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.